Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers in writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual summer writers conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from atop a hill in Mercer County, here is your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Thank you, Gertrude and Ola listeners. Welcome to Episode 41 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Today's podcast is one of our patent-pending recorded live readings, featuring a portion of the second week of the 2010 Literary Tea Series at the Greenbrier Valley Theater in Lewisburg. The teas are a great time for community members to come by the theater for an afternoon of tea, cookies, and live prose readings by cast members from GVT, as well as the event's co-sponsor, us, West Virginia Writers. And as per tradition, the teas have also been a chance for local winners of the West Virginia Writers Annual Writing Contest to showcase their winning entries, and today's episode is just such a reading. It is by Miles Dean, who was the second honorable mention winner in the humor category for a poem he wrote called Flood. He was also the first place winner, as judged by voters at the 2010 Summer Conference itself, for the Poetry Writers Wall. He won for a poem called Coat Rack in the Corner. And both of these poems are featured in today's podcast. We turn things now over to the guy who enlisted West Virginia Writers presenters for the teas, Mr. Tim Armentrout, our regional representative for Region 3. All right. Welcome to uh, the second of this year's annual literary tea series hosted by Greenbrier Valley Theater and West Virginia Writers. West Virginia Writers Incorporated is the largest Nonprofit, all volunteer writers' resource and service organization serving literary interests in West Virginia. It was founded on the fundamental principle that the written word is one of the most distinguishing characteristics of all human endeavors. Uh, I'm the regional representative, Tim Armentrout, and I'm really, really happy to introduce to you tonight Miles Dean, uh, who I had the pleasure of teaching in a workshop uh, last summer, was it? And Miles is retired and formerly the West Virginia Finance Commissioner, the West Virginia Director of Economic Development, Finance Executive at Outboard Marine, Johnson and Evinrude Motors. Um, he's also worked in soup kitchens for the Peace Corps, delivered Meals on Wheels, raised sheep, and he writes poetry. The father of three sons and has been married 46 years. And today he'll be reading you some narrative poems based on his experiences. Um, uh, without further ado, here's Miles. First one's really not from my experiences, it's just a fun one that I kind of like. It's called One Bite Too Many. Name's Dwayne. Ma says I'm about four years old. Live up Johnson Hollow with my sister Lizzie, Ma and Pa, and the baby and Granny. Granny came to live with us when Papa was away. Ma and Pa and the baby sleeps in one room, and since Granny came to live with us, her and Lizzie share my bed in the other room. I sleep on the broken down couch in the front room. The couch smells of tobacco, french fries, and pizza crust. I miss my bed. Granny carries an empty water glass with Papa's teeth in it. Says it's the only thing left of his since he's been gone. Doesn't say much, smokes a pipe, 
wears the same house dress every day. She smells funny. Rules around here are clear. Ma yells and tells and paws the sheriff. Don't pay to get on the bad side of the sheriff. Even Granny gets quiet when the rules are announced and enforced. A few weeks ago, I was teasing the cat, pulling her tail, and she scratched me up pretty bad. Ma yells, don't pester the cat. Later, I was tying a string around her tail, and she spun around and bit me. Broke the skin. When Pa got home from work, he scooped the cat into a burlap bag, disappeared down to the creek. Enough of that, he said when he came back. Later, Lizzie was teasing old Buster, pretending to eat his food. Lizzie's only about two years old. Didn't mean anything. Old Buster came rushing out from under the porch and nipped Lizzie. Ma saw and came running out of the house with a broom, hollering. That night, Pa took old Buster on his chain and his single shot, went behind the barn. Can't have that, was all he said. The mule went away after it bit and kicked Ma when she was chasing it out in the garden. And certain chickens made it to the dinner pot when they got too bossy in the yard. Rules was rules in Pa's eyes. Today, playing with Lizzie, I took her blanket, the one she slings over her shoulder and drags around the yard, wouldn't give it back. She bit me, didn't break the skin, but the teeth marks were clear. I rubbed some cinders on it to make it look red. Can't wait for Pa to get home. <laughs> the second one is called Love in the Gene Pool. I came up with this one after thinking about my sons, one of whom is here. We have three boys, and I came up with it after thinking about them for a little bit. Love in the Gene Pool. He laughs like your brother, eyes pinched, sounds from deep as he struggles for control. Temper like your father, with the size and strength of the Romans and Goths passing through the Carpentines. Outlook given to melancholy with cloudy countenance, all knows where that comes from. Not what we expected, but we were children then. When first we met and courted and came to love, we projected the filling of voids, the patching of cracks and crevices, blending the best of what we knew of ourselves with what was reflected and the other through love-colored glasses. Grandparents, aunts and uncles, not relative, just ghost passing. And then you were born and we projected what we did not know. Looks like you, repeated, but our vision of the best of us we saw and the will to make it so. As if handedness and growth were all that were left to selection. The rest to our dreams. Nowhere lurking the weakness and voids. Individual failures and courage, wisdom or compassion. And then you grew and thus we learned. The uncles and aunts, grandparents and others, both known and long forgotten, reappeared. You became some of them, some of us, and all of yourself. You laughed like your uncle, your strengths like your grandfather, your outlook like your dad. The wonder of God that made you so and you we loved. This, I spent 90 and 91, 1990 and 91 in Poland. Just after the country opened up, I was in the Peace Corps. And there were a lot of impressions that I carried with me. Uh, what I did when I was in Poland is I taught anywhere in the country. I told the other people in the, in the Peace Corps, I said, you get me a train ticket and a place to stay, and I'll teach seminars. So that's what I did for a couple of years. But I, I was very, very moved by a lot of the things that I saw and the people that I dealt with. And I'd like to read you one poem. It's called The Train Was Late. 
Sitting on the platform, collar turned up against the chill. Jacob thought back to the days when they could just go. Isaac had left earlier, warning Jacob of the coming storm and had urged him to leave. Jacob felt secure, reluctant to go. Besides, Rebecca spoke little French, no English. The children had their friends. It would all bowl over. Now this. Sitting, waiting on the platform, tickets, exit visas, and permission papers in hand, avoiding the crowded station house. Inside, the station master, the guards, and soldiers made their rounds. Puffed up with newfound authority, selecting some for extra attention. As they waited, two trains headed east and came through, one filled with soldiers, the other filled with prisoners, all with blank eyes. After each train, the platform returned to its ghostly quiet, and Jacob and his family continued their vigil. He wanted to check the time, but the platform clock had long since ceased to operate, and he'd made a gift of his watch to help obtain exit papers. Remaining invisible, more important than knowing the time, he sat muttering abuse for his stupidity, prayers for his family's safety. From the western end of the platform, two soldiers and their Alsatian dog appeared, stopped, lit cigarettes, and spoke softly, laughed as if sharing a joke. Turning, the soldiers removed their walk down the platform. Jacob knew whatever the time, the train was late. One other one. Uh, I wrote this after visiting Madonic, which is one of the one of the camps. <clears throat> I was working in eastern Poland near the uh, near the border, and I took the train to Lublin, and I, I wanted to experience what it was like. So I walked out to the camp, and when I got to the camp, there was nothing there. They, they hadn't it hadn't been set up for people to visit. It was just open. So I wandered around the camp, and this was kind of a reflection of what I saw while I was there. Yesem Juden, niet Amerikaninum. Here they came. After selection, after the showers, they came by the truckload. He pressed the handle downward. The slide tripped. Rust of the gears squealed. The slide returned with a crank. So much easier than trying to fit various sizes with arms, legs, feet, hands, catching on the sides and the, on the handles and latches. Uniform buttons polished, shoes shined. Proud of his demonstration, the soldiers looked forward to the day's end in soup, cabbage, bread, and beer. A king sat on the hillside, resplendent in his clothes and with his certain majesty, selected out those he saw as different. A small boy watching saw that the king had no clothes and he spoke out. The small boy was sent to the camp, as it was and as it could be. The soldier, the soldier was demonstrating when I got back. The only, the only person in the entire camp was a soldier back at the at the crematorium. And when I came up, we talked talked a little bit in Polish. He could tell I wasn't Polish. Determined I wasn't Russian when I was American. He wanted to show me how it worked. And it was like a tractor seat basket. And into the into the furnace, they just put the bodies in there and they flip. So that was the poem from there. <coughs> Something a little lighter. <coughs> Flood. For 40 days and 40 nights they had been sitting cheek by jowl on this stinking, cramped ship, 
with food delivered in buckets and served from a common trough. Reginald hardly knew the bunny sitting next to him on the bench. He a lap and she an angora. They hardly spoke the same language. The boars on the next bench smelled and had bristles so sharp and long they penetrated the seat and encroached on his space. And that fox in the corner, he looked a lot like the one that ate Reginald's brother. <laughs> Need to watch him very carefully. Noxious odors emanated from both ends of the bears in the next row, and Reginald imagined what their denim must have smelled like in the spring. And talk about a lack of privacy. Why, that giraffe only pretended to have his eyes closed as he telescoped around the ceiling, looking for food, he said. When the old man had first shown at his door, he made it seem like this was to be a carnival cruise line trip with all the amenities. Only two from each village would qualify. To be selected was an honor. Free food and a chance to see the whole world, the old man promised. Reginald excitedly had planned to spend some time on deck getting some rays, and now this, rain all day, every day, and all night. The only nightlife was the flash of lightning followed by the angels clog dancing on the great tin roof in the sky. And the elephants, hippos, and rhinos who exercised on the first day by walking from side to side and almost overturning the ship, that was something. About once a day, the old man appeared below deck, said to be patient, and went on about us being the select few. What a joke. Mama always said you get what you pay for, and truth and significance of this trip is free was never more clear to Reginald. Reginald hopped to the hatchway, still raining, He'd sure have something to say when he got back to dry land. <laughs> I can go on for a long time. <laughs> there, are, there are friends here from our writers group at the library, and they know it, so they'll start signaling me. They said they would throw tomatoes if I was up here. <laughs> this is a, a little bit longer one. I wrote it after reading a, a, a book recently called The Secret History of the Iraq War by Yosef Bodansky. Uh, extraordinary, extraordinary book. I recommend it, and that's not what we're here for, but I would recommend it in any case. Fog of War. Higher ceiling, lights both corner and centered over the table. Temperature warmer than expected. Probably from the lights and the press of bodies watching and observing for any strategic or tactical advantage. Removing his cue from the soft felt bag, he slowly screwed the shaft into the handle, sprinkled powder on his hands, chalked the stick, and approached the table. Knowing his tools gave confidence, he was less certain of others in the game. He practiced often, but something always different, new, each time in this situation. Bending, he sighted, drew back his cue, concentrated on the rack, this rack of war, and let the game begin. He struck the cue ball into the one ball and sent the 12 into the corner pocket. Each ball, like different countries or ethnic groups, were now in different positions than expected. Moving at the first touch almost independently, the table favored no shots that he could see. Sand swirling, heat causing eyes to perspire, goggles lifted only at the risk of filling with sand, War games in Tampa and D.C., war gamers at Tampa and D.C. knew the conditions but could not begin to project the reality for boots on the ground. How can they move in these conditions? I cannot see anything. 
Turkey denied access from the north. The Kurds about faced from Baghdad to protect their oil fields from the Turks. Where are the Shiites who would greet us as liberators? Saddam's victims waiting for revenge and the imams exiled into, exiled into Iran. The Russians, the French, the Chinese, all protecting contracts or access, already aligned with the, the, the Iranians, now seeking the new Iraqis, expecting the results and the rejection of the Crusaders, redescribing the table as the advantage changed. Egyptians receiving more aid than all except the Israelis offered to negotiate, to intervene, to reshape the table while separately negotiating their own safety. And what of the fatwas coming from all corners of the globe, preaching death to the occupiers and all those who work for them? And what of the close advisors and spooks who whispered into the ears of Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld? Success in this deadly game of pool requires knowledge of the history of Mesopotamia, of Persia, an understanding of Islam, of the experience of the Brits and the Russians. Are we too smart to have read or to read the books, to seek counsel? The game goes on. The end is not clear. This one is not experienced because we've only been married 46. We're in our 47th year, but it's one that I, <coughs> I wrote with our marriage in mind. And that's, that's bad reflection because the opening line says, after 50 years of marriage, she was gone. I, I may have a long, long, long ride or a long wait before I go home. In the drawer. After 50 years of marriage, she was gone. No notes, no last farewell, just gone. The house stood empty, his bed cold. Halls echoed his footsteps, solitary and hollow. A few weeks passed, he started packing her things, still startled by the bright colors and glitter. The children picked through, talking quietly, taking a piece of jewelry, leaving behind a tear. A lifetime ago, she'd arrived in his life, all brightness and color to his overcast day. Her only possessions, a trunk full of bright clothes and a small box secured by a metal hasp. He never asked, she never talked about the contents of the box, strengthening their bond. Children were told the box contained gypsy dust, that it was secret and off-limits. With the passage of time, her tracings fainter still. Finally, only the secret box remained. With care, he opened the box. Wrapped in burlap, he found a book in a language he didn't understand, a shiny, smooth stone, a feather, <coughs> a whistle. With a tear, he returned them to the box. He dug a small hole next to her stone in the yard, placed the sack within and covered it up. Lying down next to her, he fell deeply asleep. One more. Oh, actually, I want to do a couple. <laughs> Just get the tomatoes, get the, to get the tomatoes out. This is called Devil in the Drain Pipe. Another thing that I had to do when I was in government, the governor had asked me to go look at the Buffalo Creek files of the Army Corps of Engineers. They were locked up in a, in a basement over in Huntington. And I went over and was, was both moved and frightened and distraught by what was in there. The commitments that had been made 
the settlements that have been reached, the agreements that were reached and then breached for those who have been in West Virginia a long time. Uh, there were a lot of deals that were a little backdoor and a little bit unfair. I wrote this, <coughs> Devil in the Drainpipe. Callie didn't know why her mother and grandmother were always harping about the drainpipe. Go up on the road to school. Take the road to the company store. Don't cut through the drainpipe. The devil's in that drainpipe, they'd say. When Callie was in the second grade, when her mother no longer walked her to school, she'd follow the other kids on the shortcut through the drainpipe. Some of the older kids, knowing Callie was afraid, would jump out and even push her into the murky trash-strewn water a time or two, but no devil did she see. The gray-green single-white anchor behind Grandma's little house was home to Callie and her mother and a mangy dog that lived under the stoop. The creek meandered next to the trailer with its frogs and snakes and such, and the path on its bank led to the drainpipe shortcut under the tracks in the road. Weeks after she'd been taking the shortcut, Callie told her grandma what she'd been doing and said she'd not seen no devil. All grandma would say was that Callie wouldn't see no devil, she'd hear him. It was the devil that got your grandpa, was all she'd say. In November, the rains came. There was talk around the company store that the impoundment on the hill could not be holding back more tailings. Might be a problem, they'd say. Third consecutive night of rain, the storm intensified, lightning cracked, followed by a muffled explosion, and the creek began to rise quickly. As the water and trash pulsed through the drain pipe, it made an eerie sound, growling and shrieking at the same time, waking Callie from her restless sleep. Running from the trailer through knee-high water, Callie and her mother struggled up the hillside, climbing branch by branch, reaching safety, bruised, scratched, and shivering. Callie had now come to know what they meant by the devils in the drain pipe. She'd always known now. She missed her grandma. Sometimes she heard the devil in her dreams. One more, and then I promise I'll get down. <laughs> I may not have to promise it, just the hook may come out. It's called Coat Rack in the Corner. Waiting, arms outstretched, always waiting. For the sealskin coat smelling of salt and fish. For the damp wool wetness of snow-covered leggings. For scarves and hats piled high. For the hangers replacing my touch. For the turning that gives balance and space. I sit in silence and wait. This day will the voices of children fill the room. Boots cluster at my ankles, scarped, looped, hazardly, coats hanging by a sleeve. If they come, I'll be wet today, and when I start to dry out and return, and I'll be wet again. I remember once when the coat of a lonely traveler stood alone, smelling of the road, clinging, and then was gone. Before the caress of one meant to be, arriving too late, their coats never touching. Earlier still, when the seductive brush of mink covered gray tweed and spoke of an intimacy still to come, breathing deeply of their smell, I anticipated their departure. Other times, the vest of hunters of bird and beast, with their smell of sweat and gore, lounged over my arms, causing me to recoil as I awaited their leave. The world brings them, lovers and lonely, children and travelers, Hunters and fishermen, jackboots and gangsters, they come and I give a place to rest. Thank you.
We'd like to thank the Greenbrier Valley Theater for hosting the Literary Tea Series and inviting West Virginia writers to participate. You can go to their website to learn more about their current and upcoming plays, including Death of a Salesman, running October 1st through the 16th, and a new play called Daydream by Max Arnaud, who is a guy I've actually acted with on a couple of occasions, once even appearing on Canadian Basic Cable with him. His play is running October 6th and 7th. You can find out about these and more at gvtheater.org, and you can find that linked from our website, podcast.wvwriters.org. We have at least two more recorded live readings from the Literary Tea Series on the way, including one that I'm going to be doing on October 14th at 5.30 p.m. at the Greenbrier Valley Theater, downtown Lewisburg. Hope to see you there. And we also have some more Greenbrier County-based readings coming up, including Belinda Anderson's recent reading for Carnegie Hall, West Virginia's Brown Bag Tuesday series. Now, there are actually two more Brown Bag Tuesdays on the way that you have potential to see live and in person. On October 19th at noon, Regional Representative Tim Armentrout is going to be doing a poetry reading. And on November the 16th at noon, I'll be there reading uh, several of my short stories for a Brown Bag Tuesday. Now, I hear what you're saying. That's a whole lot of Greenbrier County-based readings there, Eric. Maybe you'd like to spread the love and invite people in other parts of the state to participate in these. Well, you're right. I would. And if you have a recording of a literary-based reading or short play, I would love to have a copy of it, possibly to use here on the podcast. Send me an email at wvwpodcast at gmail.com and let me know what you have, and we can figure out how to get it from you to me. I can take nearly any recording format, including CD, cassette, MP3, and heck, if you got it on reel-to-reel, I got one of those too. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker, whose albums can be found at cdbaby.com. Our remote recording equipment and engineering for this show was provided by Belinda Anderson, courtesy of the Wolf Creek Mountain Research Project. This podcast is a production of Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded and assembled atop a hill in Mercer County. <laughs>